0: The song expresses it is God of Abraham that we praise today. God comes to Moses as Abraham's God, Isaac's God, Jacob's God, and now Moses' God. Yet, as we start back up again in this story of Moses, Moses is beginning to question God. So, listen now for God's presence among us in these questions from Scripture. But Moses said to God, Who am I to go to the Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will show you that I am the one who sent you. After you bring the people out of Egypt, you will come back here and worship God on this mountain. But then Moses said to God, if I now come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they are gonna ask me, What's this God's name? So what what am I supposed to say to them then? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. So say to the Israelites, I am, has sent you, has sent me to you. And God continued, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God, has sent me to you. This will be my name forever. This is how all generations will remember me. Please pray with me. Holy God, be with us in the questions of this story and in all of the ways that You, our God, are present with us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Moses was born at the center of history. The events unfolding in Egypt affected him completely. Moses' life is guided first and foremost by the historical context of slavery in Egypt and then the Pharaoh's mandate to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. Moses is sent down the Nile River for no reason other than because his life is in danger. Moses, at the center of history, is helpless. He is a victim of his historical context, fully relying on those around him to save him. Otherwise, Moses would have died. Then, of course, as you know, Moses is found by the Pharaoh's daughter. She draws him up out of the river, and she, takes, she names him, and she takes him up as her own son. Moses is at the center of history. And yet this time, he is the benefactor, not the victim of history. He grows up not like a slave, not as a slave like all the other Hebrew children would have grown up, but at the center of Egyptian life, in the Pharaoh's daughter's household. Yet, in chapter 2 of the book of Exodus, the chapter leading up to this wilderness encounter that we read today, Moses' dual standing as both a Hebrew and an Egyptian begins to turn his heart towards his cultural heritage. Moses' bicultural identity causes him to interpret the world differently. He knows his origin story, he knows where he comes from, he knows that in some way the Hebrew people are his people, despite the fact that he stands apart from them, living among the Egyptians. Then, one day, as an adult, maybe for the first time, Moses sees the suffering of his people— and maybe it's literally the first time that he's stepped foot out of the palace and he sees the suffering of his people. He sees how bad it is. But it could also be that it is the first time that his eyes are opened to seeing how truly awful things are for his people. So seeing an Egyptian man strike a Hebrew man, Moses does not stand by idly. Moses strikes the Egyptian and the Egyptian dies. As if in an action movie, Moses looks left and right and up and down, hoping that no one saw him commit murder. And seeing no one, Moses assumes that he's gotten away with it, and he buries this man in the sand. But the next morning, Moses, of course, learns that the Hebrew people saw what he did to the Egyptian man and that the Pharaoh knows, and now wants Moses dead. At this point in the story, Moses could have been probably brought back into the fold of his people, right? They could have said, we saw you sticking up for the Hebrew man who was being beat up by the Egyptian. Come to us, we will hide you, we will keep you safe. And yet instead, the Hebrew community rejects Moses and they distance themselves from him. Moses is rejected from his native community, and now he's wanted for murder by his adopted family. As a fugitive, Moses escapes from Egypt and goes to Midian, a place in what we now know of as the Sinai Peninsula. It is um, the place where Moses ends up settling down. He meets a Midian priest there, he marries her daughter, they have a child, and some time passes. Then, as the readers of the story, we find out that the Pharaoh has died. The man who wants Moses dead is gone. The way is clear for Moses to return to Egypt. And so it is here in Midian on the edge of the wilderness that God calls Moses out. Moses is called out of the wilderness back into the center of history. He's called out of his routine and back into the chaos of Egypt. He's called out of his home and back into the unknown historical realities of his people. Now, having heard Moses' story, it's clear that Moses would not have had, had an orthodox religious upbringing. As soon as he was weaned from his mother, Moses was brought to live in the Egyptian palace. So maybe, maybe as a young child, Moses learned the lullabies of his mother, the songs of the Hebrew people, the spirituals, that point to God's presence. But then, growing up in the palace, Moses would have been exposed to the Egyptian religious practices. And after that, as he escaped from Egypt and settled in the land of Midian and married a daughter, the daughter of a priest from Midian, he would have been exposed daily to the priestly tradition of the Midian people. And all of that, all of that, Moses's dysfunctional religious history matters. Because when Moses is called out by God, when God calls out to Moses, telling Moses that here and now you are standing on holy ground, God says to him, I am the God of your father, your father Abraham. I am the God of your father Isaac. I am the God of your father Jacob. And in part, Moses understands. He hears that he has heard that his people are suffering. Like God, Moses saw the suffering of his people, and it made Moses so mad that he struck and killed an Egyptian, causing Moses to be rejected by his people and wanted for murder by the Egyptians. So seeing the suffering of his people was what caused him to be in the wilderness in the first place. In part, Moses gets it. He understands And yet, Moses doesn't quite get it. Moses has been on this most dysfunctional family vacation, first down the Nile River, then to the Pharaoh's palace, then out on the backside of the wilderness living with a priest from Midian. Who is this God that's coming to him in the wilderness? We hear Moses' questions a little bit differently, don't we? Seeing how diverse his religious experiences have been, who is this God that's coming to him? When Moses asks, who am I to go to the Pharaoh and bring the Hebrew people out of Egypt, it's not just a sense of humility. It's not just Moses trying to shrug off responsibility. Moses has been rejected by his people, the Hebrews, and he's wanted for murder in Egypt. How could he possibly? But God says, I will be with you. And we're, we're used to hearing this. We're... Familiar with this? God's presence is affirmed again and again and again, and so we expect that this will be enough for Moses. God will be with him. And Moses cautiously accepts this, but then continues to pepper God with questions. He still wonders, who, who will be with me? Who should I say has called me to do this work? Moses asks, If I now come to the Hebrew people and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, they're going to ask me, what is this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them? And so God opens wide the gate. On the edge of the desert, God vows to stand both in the middle of history as the God of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and on the edge of history and even beyond history. Because God says, okay, fine, I see. It's not enough for me to be the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. Fine, tell them this. My name is I am who I am. That infamous, unpronounceable name in the Hebrew language that can be translated into I am who I am, or I am who I will be, or I will be who I will be. It's a name that looks not just to the past or to the present, but to the future as well. And in fact, it, it, it gets in the middle of all of this past and present and future that it is pointing to God beyond history, not just in history. One person said it like this. You cannot apply verb tenses like was or is or will be to the name of God any more than you can apply the color yellow or the color blue to the sound of someone playing amazing grace God doesn't inhabit sound or doesn't inhabit time like humans do God invented time and is beyond time So as we close up this summer sermon series on dysfunctional family vacations we are left With this, our God, I am who I am, and I am who I will be. God at once stands at the center of history, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and also beyond history, the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I can't help but imagine how this might be true in our lives today as well. For example, this Labor Day weekend and the week surrounding it, there are many historical realities that have happened throughout the years. 75 years ago today, Hitler, in in the dead of night, gave the orders to invade Poland, beginning the war that we now know as World War II. And then, six long years later, almost to the day, Japan surrenders to the United States. God sees the suffering of the people. We saw the suffering of the people. And all of us hold in our hearts stories of how God was at work in our families in those years. Even today's school children know the stories of their great-grandparents who served and sacrificed no matter where they lived in the world at that time in our nation's history and in the world's history. So as you talk to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, the narrative of God's presence in your family is part of your family history. You tell the story of God's presence in the same way that, that Moses understands that God was at work in Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. And yet, there are times in the history of our own faith when this narrative might not be enough. There are times when we ask, Fine, I know that you are the God of my ancestors, the God of my great grandmother and my grandmother and my mother, but tell me really, God, who are you? God stands with us as history unfolds. Sometimes, like Moses, we are at the center of that history. The, the events happening globally affect us completely. So if you have a friend or a family member who lives in Ukraine or Palestine or Ferguson or Syria or Iraq. Your whole being might be attentive to the history unfolding there. At times, we might feel more as if we are standing on the edge of history, wondering how our lives could possibly go on as normal when something so monumental is going on across the globe. Sometimes we feel like we can affect change, like Joseph who was able to manage the the grain supply for the years leading up to the famine. And other times we feel like, what can we really do to bring about peace or justice or reconciliation? We're more like the infant Moses, who had to rely on those around him to survive. So this Labor Day weekend, this late August and early September, brings to mind a whole number of events that unfolded. 51 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. And 17 years ago, Princess Diana and Mother Teresa died just days apart. And nine years ago, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. Maybe you stood at the center of these historical realities affected by the weight of these events, and you would tell your story like Moses understanding that he is connected to the people of Israel. But maybe you were on the edge, maybe you were on the edge of the wilderness, away from the action, unable to do anything to accompany the world in its grief or loss or hope for justice or reconciliation. And like Moses, you were in that far off place, back behind the backside of the wilderness asking, who am I to do anything about this? It is on the edge. It is at at this place in the backside of the wilderness that we need more. We need God to swing wide the gates to know that God is with us more than just through our ancestors. It is here at the margins that we need God to call us out, to call us back, to participate in the world because it is from that place that God calls us to understand God in a bigger way, to see God not just in yesterday, but also in today and tomorrow and outside of time so that our struggles might be more manageable and that we might listen to God's call to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly in the world. It is from this wilderness place that we need God to swing wide the gates and to show us that even when our historical memory falls short, even when our family story of God's presence is not quite enough, that God still stands with us, that God is the great I am, who was and is and always will be. Culturally, we are becoming more and more like Moses. We grow up in one religious tradition, are adopted into another, and find ourselves marrying into yet another religious tradition. Our families come together from a wide variety of religious experiences, and we, too, experience the mystery of holiness as we travel around the world, or even as we sit in front of our televisions. We live in a globally religious, a global religious, diverse world, and we can't help but try to understand how God might be present in all of that diversity. So no matter where we are when history unfolds, whether we're at the center of history or at the margins, we need not just God of Abraham and Isaac of, and Jacob, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we need, now more than ever, our God who says, I am who I am, I am who I will be, I will be who I will be. We need God who is wider and wider and wider than we could have ever imagined. Like we sang in our opening hymn, morning by morning, new mercies I see. We need to see God in the new mercies among us, not just in the historical ways that God might have been present in the past. And yet, strangely, it is in our own history, the story of our faith found in Scripture, that we are freed to see God in these new ways. It is in this story from Scripture that we see God in history and beyond history, in the middle of the world's events, and on the edge of the wilderness. So now as we go out from here, as the summer ends, and as our summer sermon series ends, and we tie up all of these journeys from Genesis and Exodus, I hope that you will not close the book. I hope that you will continue to read the story of Scripture. And I hope that you will seek God in Scripture, not just looking for a rule-making God or a judging God who sits on high, But I hope that you will seek our God, the great I Am, who surprises us again and again, opening up the gate wider to all of us. And I hope that you will seek God who calls each of us back in our own way to the center of history, back into the world to live differently, to live more justly, more kindly, more authentically, in response to that wide and inclusive and radical, welcoming love that God bears out in the world. Amen.